0: Good morning, Cross Point. This seems like a good Sunday for me to remind you that this is only one of three services. Uh, the room is crowded, and the parking lot was very nearly out of parking spaces. You are welcome to come to any of the three services, <laughs> but you might find a little more room, you early risers, at 8 a.m. Uh, or at the third service of the day at 11 a.m. Let me quickly tell you that I am delighted to be back Uh, with you. We actually never stopped worshiping uh, with you. My family and I attended the third service for the last two weeks, and I just want to say publicly and thank them specifically and thank all of you. It was so good to do something that our family seldom gets to do. We just sat in a row all together. That never happens because I'm generally up here. Uh, but our older son was home uh, from the army for a couple of weeks, and he's in a season of life where he doesn't choose when he takes vacation, he leaves when he's told, uh, and that's what they call it, leave. Um, <laughs> so he left, and he came to see us, and we just had a wonderful, restful, peaceful time. And in my absence, the church seemed to do even better. Um, <clears throat> So I'm pretty committed to leaving more often. Uh, no, in all seriousness, uh, Pastor Jim and Pastor Byron both preached uh, excellent, wonderful, grace-filled, textually-driven sermons. So good to sit with my family and, and listen to the preaching of God's word uh, rather than be the one preaching it uh, on a Sunday. And on Vacation Bible School again, my wife and I are both kind of racked with some sense of guilt, and it just doesn't feel right to pump you up to serve in Vacation Bible School, and then the boy calls and says, I'll be home during Vacation Bible School, so we relished our time with him, but you did all the work. Uh, We didn't help at all, and you absolutely did a wonderful job. Thank you for serving those hundreds of kids. Thank you to the more than 100 volunteers who stepped forward. Thank you for all your giving and your prayer. It was absolutely wonderful, and I'm just enormously grateful. I've been a pastor for, I don't like to count anymore because the number's getting pretty high. Um, I'm closing in on 35 years of pastoral and missionary ministry, and the… Wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. That's not the point. I know, the dean of my Bible college said I'd never make it, so it is a surprise to all of us. But the point of mentioning that big number is to tell you I have never been more grateful and I've never worked with a finer group of people anywhere in the world uh, than this church right here. And I'm just enormously thankful to open the Bible with you. Do you have your Bible? Let's open it, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and once you see the notes and you see the title of the sermon that we have arrived to in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, some of you may wish I'd take another week off. And leave this topic for another day, or maybe not at all. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we have reached after months. We've not, I'm not choosing this sermon. This is where we've arrived as a church family. We've been traveling through the book of 2 Corinthians for a few months now. And if you remember the letter, it's a conflictive, heartbroken letter. Paul has brought the gospel to this church, which is down in the southernmost part of Greece. They were saved out of all kinds of wickedness. They genuinely turned to Christ and became Christians. He taught them all that they knew about Christ. He's written to them two letters that we have in Scripture, plus other letters that he mentions. He sent letters and people like Titus, his faithful co-laborer, to them. On one occasion with what Paul calls a a strong letter, a severe letter, rebuking them for their unfaithfulness, pleading with them as a father might plead with his children to come back to Christ, to come back to the relationship he once enjoyed with them. And Paul has spent, against his will, a great deal of this letter answering his critics and vindicating his ministry. Paul probably felt like the living embodiment of the American saying that no good deed goes unpunished. Have you ever heard that? Paul probably felt that way. He has sacrificed everything possible except his life itself so that these people can know Jesus. And in return, a faction of the church has turned against him. So for seven chapters, he's straightened all of that out and now Confident of reconciliation that they are back on the same page, he has a little family conversation with them about something they had promised to do and began to do a year earlier, namely the church, like churches all across the region. Everywhere Paul had preached, they had heard of severe persecution and poverty engulfing their fellow Christians back in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and they had begun collectively as churches in various places across the Roman Empire to do something that only Jesus could orchestrate, Gentiles are now sending money back to Jerusalem to relieve their fellow Christians who are Jews. Only Jesus can bring those kinds of that kind of unity and that kind of mutual love. And we come to 2 Corinthians, he's going to talk to them very specifically about their financial giving, and that's why I'm doing it. And I'd like to tell you on the front side, I know for myself, because I've been in ministry so long, because my grandpa was a preacher and my parents still are missionaries, and because I've been in in ministry myself from, uh, from the age of 20, I know that when a pastor, a preacher, anyone in a church setting, even if they open their Bible, they start talking about giving, immediately all kinds of skepticism is, comes up in the congregation. Not here. But it's understandable if you're coming from another place, and maybe even you've been here for a long time, and you have some painful wounds and memories around money. There's nothing quite like money to arouse people's emotions, suspicions, anger, and fear. Many years ago, I first came back as senior pastor. I I think we were in the passage that Pastor Byron just read to you. I conducted a little social experiment in our church. I came up here, stood on on this stage behind the pulpit at that time, pulled out a $100 bill out of my pocket, showed it to everybody, said, this is a real $100 bill, and then I just put it on the floor right in front of me. It was really, really interesting. Everybody stopped looking at me. Everybody's attention was fastened on the money. So I asked, how many of you need me to pick that up and put it back in my pocket so that you can pay attention? Can you guess what they said? Every single person, like, yes, please. And I, I went down, grabbed it, put it in my pocket. They cheered like everybody looks. It's the strangest thing. He goes, listen, I'm not going to walk past a $100 bill, but it's not a million dollars. It's not a pile of diamonds sitting on the floor. Why did that happen? Because money compels attention. Money is emotional. You ever had a family fight over money? I've seen it. I've been asked to mediate them. I'm reminded that even Jesus once was teaching, if you read the Gospels carefully, and someone shouted to him from the crowd, Master, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Interrupted Jesus' sermon, and Jesus' answer was, man, who has made me a judge between you? So my standard answer is, listen, if the Son of God himself will not intervene in family fights over money, (laughs) who am I? And then you've got not only bad, maybe bad financial memories because of family or friends or coworkers, a lot of the bad teaching and bad behavior around money frankly centers around pastors, preachers. Believe you me, as many bad stories as you've heard, I know more of them because I've been in this life longer. I've even known pastors who've gone to prison over financial misdealings. I talked to one of them who confessed the whole sad story to me shortly before he was sentenced and went away to a federal prison. It happens. So, I just want to acknowledge that, and I want you to listen the way you always do with careful attention to God's Word And trust God with wounds, memories, suspicions, fears, emotions, particular joys or angers. Just set all of that aside and listen to the teaching that Paul has for the Corinthians. And let me be faithful to the text. What he's talking to them about specifically is a special offering that is going to be received by this church. Regular giving, tithing, giving, missions giving, all of that is addressed in other parts of the Bible. This specific teaching is about a special offering that is being received across from Gentile churches all across the Roman world that's going to be given faithfully, and Paul will talk to us about safeguards and integrity next week, how that is going to bring relief to Jewish Christians. But I'm enormously glad that the passage is here because Paul, after going through all this trouble with the Corinthian church, is now going to sit with them trusting that they have been reconciled, that trust has been rebuilt, and he's going to teach them about Christian giving. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Six truths that Paul would have us know about our financial giving. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Watch for that word grace and related words as we read through this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, already most of us are in trouble because we don't know where that is. (laughs) Remember, Corinth is in the south of Greece. Macedonia is a Roman province directly north of them. Please don't do it now because it's hard enough to keep attention in the 21st century, but if you look at your Bible maps, you'll easily find Corinth at the bottom of Greece and Macedonia directly above them, okay? Okay? We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed. And let's just stop there. Don't read ahead. What have you just been told about the Macedonian churches? Paul doesn't relate the circumstances, but everywhere the gospel went, there was a negative reaction against it. People were persecuted, people were kicked out by their families, people lost their jobs, people were called unfaithful to Rome, unfaithful to the religion, unfaithful to the gods. Turning to Jesus then and now always has a cost, and what has happened in the Macedonian churches, Paul says, is a severe test of affliction. He says also that they are extremely poor, and in spite of that, Paul says somehow they have a great deal of joy. So he tells you three things in these first few verses about the about the Macedonian churches. They are in a severe test of affliction. They they are enduring extreme poverty, and somehow, in spite of all that, they still have abundant joy. These are real Christians. They're looking past their earthly circumstances, and they found joy in spite of the fact that they're being crushed, probably by persecution some kind of severe suffering that seems to endanger their lives and would make anyone very unhappy. And on top of that, they're already extremely poor, but Paul says in the middle of all that, they have abundant joy. And out of all of those three things, two of which are terrible, something is pouring out of their lives. And I asked you not to read ahead because I want to ask you, if you found yourself in extreme poverty, and you were being crushed by suffering and somehow in all of that you could hold on to Jesus and still have joy, what do you think might pour out of your life? What might overflow out of your life? Prayer? Tears? Hope? It's really surprising what Paul says. Look, In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of, what's it say there? Generosity on their part. Out of great suffering and extreme poverty, because they had joy in Jesus, what flowed out of their lives are not the normal and predictable and good things like prayer, maybe mourning. Maybe a call out for help. No, what poured out of them was giving. And that tells me the first and perhaps the most important thing of all the things that Paul's going to teach us in these 15 verses, the first is perhaps the most important, and it is this. Giving is a matter of your heart, not your financial circumstances. Your attitude toward giving and your practice of Christian giving, according to Paul, does not depend upon your bank balance, but upon the condition of your heart. It's not, the state, it's not the statement from your bank, but the state of your heart that makes all the difference. And that may sound like something that's easy to say from these verses, particularly from the safety of a pulpit, and you have to sit there and listen to it, but let me tell you, because my parents were missionaries and because I grew up in Mexico, I've seen it. I've told you this before, but it is one of the most striking examples that I've ever enjoyed in my entire life. When we, my family and I first went I'm talking about my wife and I and our son at the time, Ryan. When we went to Mexico for the first time, as soon as I got there, a friend of mine that I'd grown up with who had, become a, had been becoming a pastor while I was becoming a pastor in the United States had started a church up in the mountains near the city where I grew up, in Chihuahua, Mexico. He had started a simple church in one of the poorest communities in northern Mexico, which is to say some of the poorest people in the world. It was an adobe church house that exists to this day. The congregation is still small but thriving. There can't be anything but a small congregation in that place because the only alert that you're in the town is a, r- a sign on the highway. And those of you who know Spanish will love the name. The name of the town is Cebollas. What does Cebollas mean? Cebollas means onions, <laughs> okay? So if you're in a town and the name of the town is Onions Chihuahua, You know this is not a place where, you know, this is not Palo Alto. This is not Manhattan Beach. This isn't the South Bay. This is not a luxurious place. All of these folks are subsistence farmers, meaning they're working the land in that hard place just to eat. The adobe church house that they built is actually not much bigger than this stage. And it was one of the hardest preaching assignments I've ever had because the missionary who had gone up there to introduce these people to the gospel had brought the church far enough along that he said, Bruce, we need to be concerned about sending missionaries and supporting missionaries ourselves. Will you please drive up here and teach these people to give to missions? Well, no, I don't particularly want to. (laughs) And here's why. I'll never forget what I was wearing. I was wearing some simple leather shoes, some Levi's jeans, and a Tommy Hilfiger polo. And I thought to myself, I'm wearing more money than most of these people see in three months. And I'm going to drive up there in a Ford minivan, which is not all that, but this church had no parking lot because only one man in the community had a pickup, and he started it with the screwdriver. People either walked in or were picked up on a church van and driven across some very, very rugged terrains so that they could go to church together. And you want me, a visibly fat American, to tell <laughs> these subsistent farmers who are barely making it to give, but then I looked at passages like 2 Corinthians, and I can see that 2,000 years later, I can read Paul exulting over the fact that people who were just as poor and perhaps more poor than these Mexicans were 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, they gave. And Paul rejoiced so much over it, he wrote their story in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So I, with no pressure, and there's no pressure here this morning either, I'm simply telling you what the Bible says. I explained to them very simply, because most of them had little or no education, I talked to them at about a second or third grade level, and in very simple language, I explained to them that the promises of the Bible applied to them and the commandments of the Bible applied to them as well, so they should have a concern to send missionaries elsewhere because a missionary had brought the gospel to them first. The pastor was very practical. He had these sad little photocopied little squares of paper that he passed out and he wanted people not to make a promise but just to give us some idea how much do you think you can give and for this next calendar year so that we can know how much we can commit to our missionaries. And one old guy raised his hand, pointed at me, pointed at the sheet and I thought, well, there it is. He's going to say, how dare this obviously wealthy man come in and talk to us about money. I kind of cringed in the back and drew close so I could overhear the conversation. It was one of the most humbling things ever because all that was really happening was the man was illiterate and he just needed his pastor's help in filling out the sheet. That church, their first year, they're still doing this and they're doing more now, I believe, but that first year gave the equivalent of 2,000 American dollars to foreign missions. They supported a missionary in Spain You understand that Spain conquered the indigenous people of Mexico? (laughs) Only Jesus can do this, that subsistence farmers who can't read and write have the Bible read aloud and explained to them and say to themselves, "Well, we're Christians, we've got to do this too. We want in on what God has told Christians in all times to do, and the point of all this is simple. Giving is a matter of your heart, not your financial circumstances, because both wealth and poverty can be barriers to generosity. People who are poor and struggling can find reasons not to give, and I'm here to tell you the rich can find reasons to give as well. In fact, if you look at the studies here in the United States, poor people give, on average, about twice as much as the rich do when considered as a proportion of their income. The dollar amount, of course, is very small, but in terms of percentage, the poor give twice as much as the wealthy people in this country. If I could just tell you simply this... If I could have every Christian understand this regarding giving, I'd feel like my pastoral ministry had done a good service. Because there's so many hucksters. There's so many grubber, money grubbers. There's so many people who use the name of Jesus to enrich themselves and create a lifestyle rather than enjoying the support of people so that they can tell people about Christ full time. Here's the simple truth. God doesn't need your money He's after your heart. And money, money has such a strong pull on people's heart. That's why people couldn't look away when I had a hundred bucks on the floor. The Bible is often misquoted because of what money does to us. People say money is the root of all evil. That's not true. It's not what it says. What does it say? The love of money is the root of all evil. Here's the problem and here's why people misunderstand it and misquote it. It's only the love of money that is the root of all evil, but money is so lovable, have you noticed? <laughs> Pay attention at tax season and watch the emotions as people either get a big refund or the surprise of a big bill. Those emotions, those reactions are really, really, really sharp. Money has a way of making you love it and make you trust it. That's why the passage that Pastor Byron Red says, no one can serve two masters. Money makes a wonderful servant, but is a terrible, terrible boss. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Listen. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You ever heard anybody beg to be part of an offering? Please, please, can we, can we give some money? That's what was happening in Macedonia, and you can tell that it blew Paul away. He says, I'm a witness. They gave according to their means. In other words, they gave according to what they had, and they even gave beyond their means of their own accord. In other words, they wanted to. There was no pressure, no manipulation, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part of the relief of the saints. We want to help the Jerusalem Christians too. Please let us. It seems that when I went to Cebollas, Mexico and was uneasy about talking to very poor people about money, it seems that I'm in good company. Because reading between the lines, it seems that even the Apostle Paul considered not talking to them much about the needs of others because their own were so great. And his astonishment, his joy, the historical record was Paul was thrilled that they wanted to help even though they didn't have much to help with. And here's the reason it happened, verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Second truth, if you will give yourself to God, giving money will be a joy, not a struggle. The Macedonians pleaded with Paul to let them give because they had already given themselves to the Lord. Because they had such joy in Jesus, because they had such trust in Jesus, it was then natural to extend their trust and their love to Paul. He's the one that's going to take the money. Please let us participate. We've heard that the churches in Galatia are doing this. We've heard that the church in Corinth started receiving that offering a year ago, as you're about to read. Can we be a part of that too? Well, I don't know, folks. I think it'd be just fine with God if you just covered your own needs. You're really going through it. Can we please, please let us help? And that's absolutely astonishing. And the difference is whether you First, consider yourself to belong to God. See, if I have given myself to the Lord first, giving anything in my pocket is nothing. If I have given my own life, if I have given my own self to the Lord, of course my time belongs to Him. Of course my talent, of course my resources, of course my connections, of course the things that I know how to do, of course all of that belongs to Him. I belong to Him. If you give yourself first to the Lord, everything else becomes easy person who struggles to give is struggling, Paul tells us, not because of financial realities, because the gift will be accepted with joy by God no matter how small, as long as it comes from a willing and loving heart. Again, God doesn't need your money. He's after your heart. He wants your trust. He wants your love. R. Kent Hughes is one of the senior statesmen of pastors in the United States. Before you read this quote with me, let me explain to you who the man is. I've been admiring Dr. Hughes since I was a young pup in seminary. He's one of the most influential pastors, writers, and Bible commentators alive today. Now, this quote that we're about to read is really strong, and that's why I want to tell you I had the great privilege of having lunch with him with a few friends by the kind invitation of someone else who has those kinds of connections. I sat across from Kent Hughes for a few hours, and he's as gentle Sweet, humble, self-forgetful, normal as anyone I've ever met, particularly a man of his stature and his accomplishment in Christian ministry, which is why I was surprised because I know firsthand the gentleness and the kindness of the man, which is legendary, and I saw firsthand in his study of 2 Corinthians 8, he said this. Authentic salvation changes our orientation to wealth. If our professed salvation has not loosened our grip on material things so that we have become giving people, we are not saved despite our protestations. That's strong, but I think he's right. If you have been saved by the grace of God who sent his own son to take on human flesh and face all of your temptations without sin, And then willingly, through no need of our obligation of His own, except His great love for you and His great desire to obey His Father, willingly went to a cross and died for sins He didn't commit, was buried in a borrowed tomb by Roman soldiers Guarded by Roman soldiers for three days and then as promised in Scripture and by his own voice, he took his own life back so that you could have eternal life. If you are loved by a God like that, of course your orientation changes toward earthly things. It doesn't mean you don't have to work, it doesn't mean that you don't have to be responsible and save and show up and be a good employee and worry and plan about the kids and do all of those things. Everybody has to do things. That's what adult living in a fallen world actually means, but it means that you don't grip it quite as tightly, that you don't give your heart to it. That the things you earn and the things you buy and the things you own don't have your heart. God has that already. So, of course, your view of the material things He has given you for a brief time on earth, of course, that has changed. Keep reading with me, please. Accordingly, we urge Titus, that's Paul's co-worker, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you, what's it say there? Excel in this act of grace also. I love this translation we're using. That's why we use it. It's very faithful. It's very close to the originals. But Second Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15 are clunky in English. There's other translations that more fluidly explain what Paul was trying to communicate. Verse 7 is a very important verse, but because they were so formal and so careful with the English language to make it stick close to the Greek that Paul wrote it in, it's kind of hard to see what he's saying. What Paul is saying is, you're an excellent church. You have a lot of faith, You excel in speech. You excel in knowledge. You're very earnest, meaning you're very sincere, and you certainly excel in the way we love you. You have a lot going for you, church. A lot of people in the church have a great deal of faith. A lot of people in the church can speak eloquently of God. A lot of people in the church have a deep knowledge of God. Many of you are very sincere, and we certainly love you, but verse 7, see that you will excel in this act of grace also. What's Paul saying? Number three, giving is one area where every Christian should excel. If I could paraphrase Paul to simplify the clunky language of this English translation, he's saying this, as a father might to his children, listen kids, you have all the gifts, make sure you get better at giving too. And that's a curious thing. Because I've been reading Christian books since I was about 12 years old. And now I read them for a living. It's quite a job. You do a lot of reading, you work one day a week, it's a split shift at that, and sometimes you take two weeks off because you find it so exhausting. Quite a job, right folks? Well, I've been reading Christian books. I don't know, i have not much on keeping track, but I've read a library worth of Christian books. Do you know that I'm only aware of one that speaks specifically to Christians about how to excel at giving? There's a lot of books about how to excel at practically anything and everything. But check it out, if you can find a Christian bookstore. Find the manager and say, where are the books that will teach me how to give? Watch what happens. They're going to look at you like you have three heads. That's not going to make any sense to them. Anything and everything that we want to develop in is in the Christian bookstore. Teaching regarding what Paul says here in verse 7, see that you excel in this act of grace too. In other words, make sure that you're generous the way the Macedonians are. The Macedonians blew me away with their generosity. They're not as strong, they're not as talented, they're not as wealthy, they're not as gifted a church as you are. Make sure that you get good at giving too. The reason is this, number four, giving, Paul says, is motivated by love. I say this, verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Simply put, legalism asks how much do I have to give? See, that's a question I've been asked many times as a pastor. People start reading their Bibles. People start attending church. They develop Christian friendships. They notice that their mature Christian friends are generous people. So the question comes back, Pastor, about this giving thing, like you guys are passing a plate, you're praying for an offering, just one question, how much? That's an understandable question. But my point is this, It's a legalistic question. It wants to know the letter of the law so that you can fulfill it, so that you can check that box. Love asks a different question. Love always asks, how much can I give? That's how those of us who love our children are living our lives. Not everybody loves their kids. I've been a sad witness to that many times. But many loving parents are always kind of orienting their whole life. If they really love their kids, they're orienting their whole life so that they can do something for their kids. Don't we all want our kids to do better than we have? Isn't the whole point of parenting and our loving understanding to clear some barriers out of the way of the kids to make things easier for them than they were for us? That's love. A lot of the pain around money... Like child support payments, giving unwillingly, giving after fighting, giving after a great deal of negotiating. A lot of the pain around money comes because people are legalistically asking, How much do I have to give? Not much, how, how much can I give? Number five, the reason this is true is because giving is a personal response to Christ's own sacrifice. Verse 9 is one of the most wonderful verses in the passage. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Right in the middle of this very practical teaching, and before we're done in the next few minutes, it's going to grow more practical still, Paul says, listen, the reason all of this is happening... Is because we are graciously responding to the grace of Christ. The reason we are givers is because Christ was a giver. Even though Jesus was rich, for our sake he became poor so that when Jesus became poor, we by his poverty might become rich. That's the gospel, that's what brings us together. That's what ties it all together. That's what makes every Christian virtue and every Christian behavior and belief and practice matter. It's all in response to God. In simple terms, Christian giving is a grace. It's a loving gift, not a dutiful repayment. If you spend the rest of your life saying, well, Jesus loves me, so I guess I better give at least a little something... You won't enjoy giving at all. You'll never break through to the joy of it. You'll never feel God's pleasure in it. You'll never have this wonderful transformation, which Paul's about to explain to us, that you realize that uh, things have been abundantly given to you so that you can be a blessing to other people. That's the difference between love and legalism. That's the difference between duty and genuine love. You know where I see this often? The happiest place on earth. Where is that again? About 15 miles north of here, a place called Disneyland. Here's what that looks like if we lose sight of the purpose of giving. People spend, I don't know if you know this, you probably do if you've been, people spend a lot of money to go to Disneyland. And not everybody can drive up Beach Boulevard to go there. People come from all over the place. They get tired of melting in Orlando, Florida. So they come in the summer at great expense and then dad is astonished by the prices at the gate and about two hours into it, the five-year-old's fed up with it and he's bright red because Anaheim does get hot in spite of all the commercials and that blacktop makes that kid look like a little tomato and he starts crying and dad says something like this, listen, we paid way too much money we didn't come all this way for you not to have a good time. Have you seen these conversations? Have you been the one leading the conversation? I used to joke with my dad, I'm an only child, so all the attention was focused on me. But my dad seemed to have the opinion that we were going to have a good time on vacation, even if he had to kill me to have it. It was, it was just a. Why am I telling you all this? Because. It's easy to lose sight that what Paul is telling us that all of this is driven by love. The reason the poor suffering Macedonians were willing to give is because they found great joy and great love in Christ. The reason the Corinthians had started to give and put it off for a full year is because they had been alienated in their love for Christ. They had broken off relationship to some degree with Jesus and certainly with the apostle Paul. Your giving is not a matter of amount, it's a matter of love. If you have genuine love for the Lord, a genuine desire to spread the gospel, a genuine desire to show God that you trust Him and love Him more than your income, you're always going to see it as a loving gift, not as a dutiful repayment. And then finally, and I'm done, Paul gets really practical. Look at verse 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. In other words, a year ago you were eager to give, and you started to give, but then you stopped. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need so that there may be fairness. Then Paul goes all the way back to the story of the Exodus and God providing manna for Israel and quotes Exodus, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. At the end, Paul gets practical, number six, because giving is practical as well as spiritual. What do I take from these verses? Well, Paul says, it's not enough to want to do it. Letter A, you have to plan for it. They had put off their giving for, did you notice the time? A year. You ever had good intentions but not a plan to carry them out? If that ever happened to you, it happens to me. My New Year's resolution was was to lose 20 pounds, and good news, I only have 25 to go. (laughs) Now, why has that happened? Because there has been a desire. There has been no plan. I think I'm carrying about three extra pounds from these two weeks of vacation because planning went completely out the window. Where do you want to go, buddy? That's where we're going. And he's big and strong, and he runs and surfs, so he ate like a Viking, and out of sheer joy that he was home, I joined him. (laughs) And I noticed something. Because I wasn't planning to eat well, I ended up eating the worst, best-tasting stuff in Southern California. (laughs) Doing anything meaningful takes a little planning, a little foresight. Paul had already given them instructions. Look at this in the first letter, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Look how practical this is. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Simple. Now, what does that look like? If you actually desire to honor God and do what Christians have been told to do and have joyfully done for 2,000 years and do what this church has done so well in all of its history, you have to plan for it. You have to decide when you're going to give and how much you're going to give and how you're going to give it. How, how and when and where, that's entirely between you and the Lord. I know people who give an annual gift. Their tax situation is such that for them, it makes more sense to give one single offering once a year, and that's it. do not I know this because they've told me, not because I look. For myself, my personal practice in keeping with this verse is, as soon as I have income, I scoop out a and I give it away as soon as I get it. That means that my giving is very regular but also intermittent because I don't get paid every week. My giving is done 26 times a year. If anything extra comes in, as soon as that income is received, in keeping with my income, I set a sum of money aside and I give it. A second thing, Paul says here, give according to what you have. Verse 12, if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Here's where the prosperity gospels and the Bible twisters on TV get it so wrong. They'll tell you to take out a second mortgage, to put yourself at financial risk, to do whatever you have to do to send them a gift and God will send it back to you tenfold. Have you heard this pitch? Funny thing, the preacher never says, I'm going to send you money and trust to God take care of me tenfold. It always and only flows in one direction. They're squeezing people for money that those people do not sincerely have, and it's simply not biblical. And finally, Paul says, all I'm looking for here is fairness. Currently in Jerusalem, they have a great need, and you have an abundance, Someday they will have an abundance and you will have a great need. So a final practical note, letter C, remember that your abundance is meant to supply someone else's need, not spoil you. That's really the acid test of giving. Are you trying to be a blessing to other people or trying to enhance your lifestyle? Every person, every family, every wage earner, every income receiver, is going to have to deal with the Lord personally on what that looks like for him because I look spoiled compared to the poor of Mexico. That's where your relationship grows with the Lord, but the simple point in the heart of the matter is this. Folks, we've been saved by God's grace, so let's be great givers ourselves. Let's pray together, please. Can I give you just a moment to remind yourself of the gospel and how much God loved you that he sent his son to die for you? Could I invite you, please, though this message has not been centered on the gospel, Paul mentions it in a single verse, Christ made himself poor so that you could be rich. If you haven't trusted Jesus, can I invite you to do so? call out to Him and confess your sin to Him and ask Him to save you. And Christian, if you already have Christ, what if you gave Him your heart all over again in such a way that out of your circumstances came joy and generosity like the Macedonians? What if you made sure that you had given yourself all of yourself to God And consequently, if you would do that, the giving, the proportions, the amount, the timing, the frequency, all of that, that's just details. God has you. He'll have your talent. He'll have your time. He'll have your money too. And you can give it to Him in love knowing that He's rejoicing in it and He'll put it to good use. You'll be a blessing to others with the blessings He first gave you. Give yourself to Him in love. Ask him what he would have you do.